If you were here last week, you know that Kyle kicked us off on a sermon series which we are calling A Firm Foundation, and we are looking at the covenant renewal, or covenant renewal, particularly as it happened in the return from exile in Babylon. We looked last week at how God, through Cyrus, brought his people back from exile, and then Kyle outlined this tension that exists between the covenant renewal and the constant failure that seemed to be happening throughout that process of building the altar, building the temple, building the walls and restoring Jerusalem to what many saw as its former glory. Now when you hear the word covenant renewal, I wonder why it runs through your head. Uh, lots of uh, people probably think that's just a big jargonistic word. They may be confused, may be confronted by the idea that what does it mean to have a firm foundation and have to renew the covenant. Surely if the foundation's firm, we don't have to keep renewing the covenant. Perhaps you feel excited. Perhaps you are used to the idea of that cathartic reaction and an altar call where you run up and you recommit your life to God. Perhaps you feel guilty. You realize that when people renew covenants, like marriage covenants, or when they restate those vows, it's often because of some catastrophic failure in the relationship. And perhaps you feel the guilt of being unfaithful, of wandering, of being away from God. Perhaps you feel hopeful. Perhaps this is the time. This covenant renewal moment is the time when I'm finally going to be changed to be a fully faithful person. Or perhaps you feel depressed. Another day in the ongoing cycle of repentance and failure. Repentance and failure. Repentance and failure. In this passage, we see two things. First of all, we see the signs of covenant renewal. What is covenant renewal? And the great enemy of covenant renewal, what gets in the way? So we're going to look at two things. The sign of covenant renewal, what is covenant renewal? And the great enemy of covenant renewal, what actually gets in the way of the renewal? So... Let's jump in with what is covenant renewal. This is Old Testament passage. So we have to make sense of this in the context of the Old Testament. First of all, they built an altar. Then they sacrificed on it. And then they lay the temple foundation. They begin the building of the temple. Now the first thing they did was that they built an altar. And we see something straight away here in what is foundation to covenant, foundational to covenant renewal. True worship has, and I'm going to unpack this, but it has a gospel hope at its center. Or another way of putting, at it, putting it is the fear of the Lord is at the center of this over the fear of something else. If you look at verse 3 of this text, you can see that it wasn't that there wasn't other things to be afraid of. It wasn't that they felt safe in that environment. It's that fact that they prioritized building that altar over everything else. In fact, verse 3 goes like this. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings. And then it goes on. So the first thing we see about covenant renewal is this idea that the, Lord, the fear of the Lord is prioritized over everything else, over security, over anything that might get in the way or make, people, make us think is more important than worshipping the Lord. But how does building an altar show gospel hope? 
Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, we see that the burnt offering was a way of atonement. Atonement being a fancy word for restoring a relationship, for making up for a deficit, for correcting a debt that was owed to, to re-establish a relationship. It's a way of escaping the wrath of God, of recognizing the need and participating, in a sense, in the act of atonement. And if you're wondering how that connects to Jesus or to the gospel, the good news, uh, then go to the book of Hebrews, and you'll see that in the book of Hebrews it talks about the high priest who intercedes. And it makes direct connection between the whole high priest in the Old Testament and Jesus who intercedes for us. And the perfect lamb who was sacrificed. Of course, the perfect lamb in the Old Testament is what's put on the offering, the lamb without blemish. And for us, we know that from Hebrews, that the perfect lamb that was sacrificed was Jesus. And we see that this practice of burnt offering, this rhythm, this discipline of burnt offering, happens all through the first, uh, first six verses that were read. There's a worship rhythm here. In verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, they talk about sacrificing in the evening and the morning, of going through sacrifices associated with different festivals, of using sacrifices in the general sense and in the specific sense. And we see that, or we know from Leviticus, that the way the sacrifice was done was that you, the person who was making the sacrifice would put their hand on the head of the animal. They were basically saying, this animal is taking my place. And then that person would have to kill the animal. The priest would then take it and it would be fully consumed. In a sense, the judgment that should have been put on the person was placed on the animal. And the animal in some ways solved the problem of sin. It solved the problem of rebellion. It resolved the problem of people who had rejected God, rejected Yahweh, had broken the covenant, had walked away from the commitments that they had made to, to Yahweh. And everything in this section, as we read it again, you see this in, in verse uh, 3, in accordance with what was written in verse 4, then in accordance with what was written, and then in verse 5, all the appointed sacrifice, sacred festivals of the Lord. All of this is done in accordance with the instructions that are found in Leviticus and were given to Moses uh, at Mount Sinai. So they are, they are reconnecting with the worship practices that were given to Moses, written down in Leviticus, and they're doing it according to the Scripture. And so we see another factor here. First is the prioritization of God over everything else. The second factor here is it's done by the book. So when we do worship here, you'll see that we do communion and we do baptism. We continue meeting together, as it talks about in Scripture, meeting together. The do not give up meeting together and breaking of bread together. We bear one another's burdens. We live our lives as worship according to how it's written in Scripture. So we have to see that in this Old Testament context, the gospel context for us is one of putting the building of the kingdom of God in its uh, priority, in its first place, fear the Lord before everything else, develop a rhythm of worship, right? So that means doing everything by the book and then doing word and prayer. And you notice how they built the altar and then they 
developed a discipline of doing it. So for us, what does that look like? If we are really to be serious about communing with God, with worshipping with God, we need to build those same disciplines into our life and then we need to practice them. You can't worship on an altar without first building the altar and then you can build those practices. So what does it mean to build space into your life for prayer and for worship? And it's an intentional thing that you have to think about. It's not something that you throw in. It's priority. It's the first thing you do. And from that, everything throws. So we have the prioritization of God. We have basing it on the word. And then we have this idea of uh, building space in our life, building that altar space, that sacred space in which uh, to commune with God. Now... Am I overreading the gospel hope in this text? Let's look at Zechariah, who was a prophet at the time. He was actually prophesying at the same time as that his, this history book was being written. So let me read this passage. And you can see that he's talking about coming back from Babylon. Come, Zion, escape you who live in, uh, in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Now perhaps that line applies to God coming and residing back in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. So at this point, perhaps we haven't quite got to Jesus yet. But then the next line says, I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Okay, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will choose Jerusalem again. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he's roused himself from his dwelling. And the line that really gives it away is line 11. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. So we see that actually this is a, a promise of the coming of the Messiah. It's the coming of Jesus. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a foretaste of Pentecost. It's where all the nations come together and it's where God dwells amongst his people. Jesus is walking amongst us. So their return from Babylon has both a very personal piece to it. You are the apple of my eye and it has a kingdom focus to it. They... They both built the temple, not because uh, the altar or the temple or the walls were particularly important, although obviously that was the way it was done in the Old Testament, but because they were responding to God's call. The work that God has called them to. So they are doing not what is, uh, they're doing work which is God worship, not self worship. Work that restores relationship, the apple of God's eye and advances God's kingdom. So yes, they're going back to Jerusalem. They're building an altar. They're building a temple. They're building walls. And that's a great and encouraging thing for them personally. But more important than that, they're restoring their relationship with God and they're understanding that they're the apple of God's eye and they're participating in the coming of the kingdom. Now, it's not... It's very important for us to realize then that 
Uh, and as, as Lizzie was alluding to as she was talking, all of life is worship. So it's not the temple. It's, it's not the building of the stained glass or the, the beautiful walls. That's important here. It's the responding of the call and the participation in the kingdom of God. So when they engage in this activity, when they do the prioritizing, when they work out the rhythms, when they work out uh, what, what it, it means to be the apple of God's eye and, to, and what it means for them to be faithful and responding to God's kingdom, they're not talking just about church worship. They're talking about all of their life and what it means to respond to God's call and what it means to prioritize, or not just prioritize, but to live a life which is grounded in the kingdom. So if we move on to verses 7 to 11, we see that they start to build the temple, and it's important to see how this was done as well. Let me read that, verses 7 through 11. They gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, does anyone recognize that from any other time in history? This is exactly how Solomon built the temple. He bought the same goods from the same places and play, paid for it in the same way. They're doing this temple, they're rebuilding this temple in accordance with the word, with accordance with the instructions that was given to Solomon by David. In the second month of the second year after the arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, a son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity began the work. Now, you're probably not sitting there thinking that date sounds very familiar. But in fact, that is the exact date that Solomon started to build the temple, in the second month of the second year. So in a sense, there is a... of his, of his uh, being king. So in a sense, they are recreating the temple construction in accordance with the way that it was done in the Old Testament. They are being faithful to the word. They're being faithful in the way they are doing this. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and uh, Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hadavia, and sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in the supervising of those working on the house of the Lord. Again, they prioritized doing it in the way that it had been done before with Levites supervising it. So we've seen again in this text, it goes on then to talk about how they dedicate it. And you see that the same song of thanksgiving that they use here is the same song of thanksgiving and dedication that Solomon used when he restored the temple. So there is a sense in which they are going back and they are doing it the same way as it was done before. They are being intentional about doing it by the book. Now, there are busy times here, going on here, right? They're planning, they're trading, they're building. And yet in the midst of all of that, they're able to go back and work out how is this supposed to be done, how is this supposed to be done, built? How do I immerse myself in the Word of God? How do I prioritize and discipline myself? How do I work the rhythms of prayer and scripture reading, uh, uh, the, wor the worship rhythms, so that everything can be done by the book, so that word and prayer, that altar practice, that sacred communion happens, they've built that space in their life, so that they know 
how to get on with the business of life despite their busyness, and they, they did it by the book. Now, we sort of get this, right? Because those of us who are married or parents, uh, we know that you build rhythm into your life to maintain covenant relationships. Patty, my wife, and I, we go for a walk every Wednesday morning together. Many of you probably have a date night that you uh, intentionally go out on if you're married once a month. Uh, perhaps uh, you go to bed at the same time every night. Most of us eat meals around the table. We have these rituals and these rhythms that we engage in to keep the relational connectivity together in covenant relationships. We do feasts together. We do Christmas or Thanksgiving. We do all of these rhythms throughout the year, throughout the day, throughout our life, which keep us in covenant relationship. And the same thing happens with God, if we want God to be in the center of our life, if we want to maintain that covenantal connectedness, then we need to, even in our busyness, prioritize that sacred communion of word and prayer. We need to develop those rhythms which connect us in relationship with him. We need to do those meals, those breakfasts, those Wednesday walks with God. So the rhythms are required for the centrality of the gospel, even in the busyness of building the temple, of doing the commerce, of getting the logs, of doing that in a way which, was which is consistent with the word, was done because they were grounded first in the sacred rhythms of the gospel at the altar. And that is true for all of us in whatever sphere of life, whatever piece of commerce, whatever trading we're doing, whatever we're doing in our marriages or our parenting, it first has to be grounded in those sacred rhythms of prayer and word. We need to create that space to have communion with God. So there are uh, pieces that come out of this which are important for us to realize because most of us, I think, struggle with those rhythms, but we work on them, we wax and we wane. But there are particular times, particularly in crisis and transition, where we suddenly move from perhaps being grounded in the gospel to trying to squeeze the gospel in. New job, birth of a baby, just got married. We need to reconfigure. We have to be intentional about going back and reconfiguring those rhythms, those relationships with God. And here's the test, right? The question really is, do the rhythms that you work through, and by rhythms I mean disciplines, I mean those times of prayer, of reading the word, of being immersed in relationship activities with God, creating that sacred space. Do those rhythms, that connection with God, do they give meaning to the new baby? Do they give meaning to the way you express and live out your marriage? Do they give meaning to how you understand and engage in that new job? Or do they become ways of building your own identity or finding your own hope or building something of your own image up in them and hence become distractions. Are you grounded in the gospel or overwhelmed in maintaining your own kingdoms? Now, you might think, well, perhaps that's about how busy I am. Well, I can tell you from two experiences that it's not really how that works. When I was... Uh, when I was considering teaching at Gordon, which is a good and healthy thing, and many of you are teachers at Gordon, people were telling me, don't do it. 
you're too busy, you've got too many things going on. And my fellowship group said to me, they tried to hold me accountable. They said, that's really not a good idea. My wife tried to hold me accountable. You don't have any time for that. It's really not a good idea. In every way, God tried to reach into my life and say, this is a bad idea. Now, again, teaching a Gordon is a good thing to do if that's what God has called you to do. But if you're not listening to God, if you're not in those rhythms, if you're not responding to him, if you're trying to build your own kingdom, you're trying to do it for the sake of ego or because you, th you, you think, if I don't teach them this, then who's going to teach them? Those kids are never going to understand how to integrate psychology and theology. The whole of the kingdom of God is going to fall apart if I don't take this job. If you've got that running through your head, which I think I had running through my head at the time, you can end up being very overwhelmed. Now, the great and gracious thing that God did for me was he made that a thing which I could stop after one semester and I could get out. But I've redone that multiple times in my life. I've committed to things which really are not. They're great things. They're good things. But they're not the things that God has called me to. And if I was in sacred rhythm with God, if I wasn't doing those things to build up my own kingdom, I wouldn't be overwhelmed. One of the examples that I was called to was during COVID, working at Tewksbury Hospital and going into the units which were full of people who were actively COVID uh, infected at the early stage of the infection and doing uh, psychological interventions in situations where there were problems on those units. Putting all the gear on, walking in, coming out, dealing with the death, all of those things should have and would have been overwhelming except for the fact that I knew that it's where I was supposed to be. In some ways, I was more busy. I should and could have been more stressed. I could have been more disconnected and overwhelmed than I was even when I was at Gordon. But because it was where I was supposed to be, because in that place of sacred communion with God, I knew that was what he was calling me to, I was able to get through that. All of the ridiculous of that, coming home in scrubs, having to stand naked on the front door, running to the shower whilst I carried a little bag of my scrubs to the washing machine, all the family scattering, our friends of our family not wanting to play with our kids because they knew that I was in a... All of the stuff that we went through as a family because of that never was overwhelming. It felt faithful, it felt right. The sacred connection with God enabled us to enter into what could have been overwhelming because we were connected, because we were listening. When I don't listen, it's overwhelming. When I do listen, it's not overwhelming. So those rhythms, that grounding in those rhythms, those grounding in the listening to God, the grounding in the word and the grounding in prayer is what, uh, is, what is central to us working out what we're called to and how we should be doing it. So that question again, that new job, that baby, that marriage, which kingdom? They're all good things. And I'm not suggesting you should get out of any of those after six months, but work out how those things should be seen and how you should interact with them and you won't be overwhelmed. Are you grounded in the gospel or are you overwhelmed by maintaining your own kingdom? Covenant renewal is the act of grounding ourselves in the centrality of the gospel. It means not walking into those things 
because we're trying to build our own kingdom, but walk into those things because we've been in the sacred space of communion with God and we know we're called to it and we do it in a way where we're committed to building his kingdom and not building our own kingdom. So then what is the great enemy then? What is the great enemy of covenant renewal? I mean, I really date myself now, but there is a show on television called Lost in Space. It's probably not on anymore. It's probably a black and white show. Rob's nodding his head. Most of you have probably never heard of it. But there's this robot, crazy robot, that looks after a young kid as they travel throughout space. And every, the only line the robot seems to know is, warning, warning, Will Robinson, warning, warning, Will Robinson. And as crazy as it may seem, that's what this passage is doing to us. It's yelling out, warning, warning. I want you to understand what the great enemy, the thing that really gets in the way, that derails this idea of grounding ourselves in the centrality of the gospel. What is the great enemy of covenant renewal? Well, it might be tempting to think that it's not reading the word and praying in the evening and at night. It's not that. You might think it's not practicing a Sabbath and grounding yourself in that sacred space. It's not that. You might think it's confusing building the kingdom of God with building our own kingdoms. It's not that. You might think it's not recalibrating rhythms after crises or transitions in our lives. It's not that. These are the failings that require us to constantly do the work of covenant renewal. We are broken, wretched, straying, unfaithful people these are the things that make covenant renewal a necessary, ongoing, permanent state for us this side of the coming kingdom. But they are not the thing which gets in the way of, which derail the great enemy of covenant renewal. So what is the great enemy of covenant renewal? Let me read verses 11, the second part of 11, to the end of the chapter, to the end, to 13. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the shouts for joy and the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. So what is the great enemy of covenant renewal? Well, in this passage we see that the building site, that they're rebuilding the temple and they've put this foundation stone down. And it's not impressive. It's just not impressive. They've got this altar and they've got this rock on the ground. It's nothing like the previous temple that they remember. There's nothing to rejoice at. It's a small remnant that's got back together. The great city of Jerusalem, the great experience of temple worship, all of that is not there. The old timers are looking back and they weep at the pathetic small capstone in front of them. And of course there's a huge irony here because when do you think Israel was the most unfaithful just before they went into exile so here they are looking back at the time just before they went into exile and thinking wow this is nothing like before we went into exile how sad and pathetic is this altar and this rock compared to what it was like back then when we were completely apostate and unfaithful and so you can see that it's not the relationship 
with Yahweh, with God that they remember here. It's the self-glory or the cultural glory. It's the idea of being close to Yahweh. It's the idea of the sanctuary, the temple, the, the stained glass window. It's not being close to Yahweh. It's the idea of being close to Yahweh which is attractive. And I want to say for a church which we are, which we like to think of ourselves as faithful, thoughtful community, now the danger of that word thoughtful is that we can intellectualize. And intellectualizing is coming very close to liking the idea of being close to God. Now intellectual, being intellectual, being thoughtful is good. But if it's done instead of relationship, if we start to idolize that, we're in real trouble. So there's a danger there for us who are, tend to be more intellectual that we need to watch out for that. It's not the idea of being close to Yahweh which is important. Not the idea of being close to God. It's genuinely being in relationship with God which is important. But this is not the enemy either. Certainly the temple was seen for them as something reflected on them and on their kingdom, their place, their culture. But that's not the enemy either. We all do this. We all do this. We do it with our marriages. This marriage reflects on me. We do it with our kids. These kids reflect on me. We do it with our jobs. This job is what gives me status. These, we make all of these things our identity. And again, the, the, all this speaks to is our need to be in constant covenant renewal. Constantly repenting. Going back to the centrality of the gospel. Finding and grounding ourselves in, the, uh, in a... Uh, sacred space with God that outworks into every area of our life. So then what is the big enemy of covenant renewal? Well, again, we're going to go back to the prophet Zechariah and what he said at the time. And he says about this exact situation. Zechariah 4, 8 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Key word here. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who dares despise the day of small things? Now we are broken, wretched, straying, unfaithful people. Covenant renewal absolutely needs to be a way of life for us. Now what's my reaction to this when I hear that? I am a broken, wretched, straying, unfaithful person and covenant renewal needs to be a way of life for me. What's my reaction? I get discouraged. I call out, come Lord Jesus, come. And that sounds very holy, doesn't it? But it's not because I'm excited to see Jesus, or at least that's not the main reason. Often it's just because I'm sick of me. I'm sick and tired of being a broken, wretched, straying, unfaithful person. I'm like, God, get this over with. Bring on the coming kingdom. I'm really tired of me, and I'd really like to be fully sanctified, fully glorified. How self-absorbed am I? How self-absorbed are you? Who dares despise the day of small things? Me, it seems. And, and maybe you too. In verse 13, we see the sound that they're talking about here. The sound 
the, the shouts to the Lord that were heard far away. Some of it joy and some of it weeping. Rejoicing at the work, distressed at the smallness of the work. Rejoicing at the day of small things, distressed at the smallness of the thing. I am a wretched sinner, and how do I respond to this? Now, the problem with the gospel is there's this sort of tension in it, right? It's all about me, but it's also not all about me. And we see that tension in this text. I am a wretched sinner. How do I respond to this? The gospel work in me seems small and insignificant. That's one way of responding. Weeping, being distressed, being caught up in my own sin. Now, certainly we need to repent and be aware of our sin. Or we respond by saying, I am the apple of his eye and his love endures forever. Am I despising of small things or am I excited about every small movement of covenant renewal that God works in my life? Am I shouting for joy at his small works so that people far away can hear? Or am I self-absorbed in my weeping, consumed with the fact that I'm a wretched sinner and his work seems insignificant to me? So those are choices that we have. That is, in fact, the mortal enemy of covenant renewal. This idea that it has to be so ground, so profound, so earth-shattering, so amazing, so complete. When in really, covenant renewal is the ongoing work of prioritizing God, the ongoing work of creating sacred space to have rhythm and relationship with God, of taking that and working it out and responding to his call. And it is an ongoing work because we constantly wander and he constantly calls us back. And if we lose sight of the fact that we are in the midst of that brokenness, that we are always the apple of his eye and that his love endures forever, we get discouraged, we get despondent, we get caught up in our own self rather than being captivated by his majesty and his work. Covenant renewal, the act of grounding ourselves in the centrality of the gospel. Luther said life, Christian life, is one of daily repentance. We might say it's a life of daily covenant renewal. We are people of the book and we are people of prayer. This is how we relate to God directly. Covenant relationships require rhythm. They require rhythms. We need to build the space for those rhythms. We need to practice the rhythms and we need to rework the rhythms in crisis and transitions. In fact, doing that is the work of constant covenant renewal. But the warning here is not to become tired, not to become exhausted, not to become self-consumed about that process of covenant renewal. Do not despise the day of small things. I am, you are, we are the apple of his eye and his love endures forever. Let me just say that one more time to close out. I am, you are, we are the apple of his eye and his love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this text, so much practical, good advice. 
advice about fearing you before anything else. Advice about building and using sacred space. Advice about making sure that we are building your kingdom and not building our kingdom. Advice which is really all covenant renewal stuff. But there's also a great warning here, which I pray that you will help us take to heart. We get consumed by our own brokenness. It's good to be aware of it, Father, but not to be consumed by it. The point of the gospel is that you free us. The point of you coming on the cross, the point of the atonement, everything those sacrifices pointed to, Father, was to free us, to help us to move to a place where we recognize and see ourselves as the apple of your eye. To be reminded that your love for us endures forever. Help us to walk in that place and not one of self-loathing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.